Good evening, one and all. And we are here again tonight with Systematic Theology, session number 41. And what we're continuing with is the examination of redemption, God's work of choosing a people for himself, accomplishing redemption, then applying redemption to his elect people. We've been looking at how God applies redemption to the people that he elected before the world was. God is not a God of confusion, but a God of order. So we would expect that God applies the blessings of redemption to his people in an orderly and logical manner. Even though some of the aspects of redemption are applied at the same moment of time, some aspects must come logically before others. And we've been going through that logical order, which theologians express as what they call the ordo salutis, which is just Latin for the order of salvation. And once again, that order is listed in your notes as a reminder. We already looked at step zero, which is election, an action of God's free and sovereign grace that he accomplished before the world was. Then we looked at step 1A, the effectual call. We moved on to step 1B, regeneration or the new birth. Now steps 1A and 1B are really two sides of the same coin. In fact, some theologians combine the two. They say that they're really the same thing. Now we're still on step 1B tonight, looking at regeneration. Regeneration is just another name for the new birth, the new birth, or being born again. You know, being born again, it's a phrase that's used a lot, even in the surrounding pop culture. In Christian circles and in the surrounding culture, the phrase born again came to mean someone who kind of like really meant business with being a Christian. They were set apart both culturally and even politically from people who just identified as cultural Christians. And since that phrase, born-again Christian, is so up for grabs in the culture, people tend to look at it as just kind of a sociological marker. It means that, well, not only do you go to church, but you go on a regular basis. And it, it kind of refers to a certain kind of church and a certain kind of social and even political leaning. But we saw at our last session that the new birth is a recreation of our nature. The theologian Gerhardus Voss defined it as an immediate recreation of the sinful nature by God the Holy Spirit and an implanting into the body of Christ. In our last session, we picked the definition apart and we saw that God the Holy Spirit is the source of the new birth, that we are passive in the new birth. We don't help God along in the new birth by anything we do. A born-again Christian it's not a social or political category. It is spiritual life brought forth from spiritual death. It is light bursting upon spiritual darkness. The new birth or regeneration recreates us at a foundational level and starts a new life where we seek to please God, where God's will is becoming our will. We saw that where we are headed in this change, it's not all at once. But for as long as God has us in this world, we're in a process of sanctification. And we're going to tackle that when we get further along in the Ordo Salutis as a separate topic. In regeneration, God the Holy Spirit removes our heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh. Scripture points to the heart not as the physical organ, but as the center of who we are. From the heart comes the streams of life, the streams of life. Before we, before we were regenerated, our heart was corrupt. The source was corrupt. So the streams that came from the source, they were also corrupt and contaminated. But after regeneration, the heart is recreated. So the streams that come from the source begin a process of becoming more Christ-like. In the last session, I identified the streams that come from the heart as the mind, the will, and the affections. The mind, the will, and the affections. And what I'd like to do for the next session is to look at each of these streams, the mind, the will, and the affections, to see how they were contaminated before regeneration and how they are fundamentally changed at the new birth. So for tonight, we'll look at the mind. The mind. In the new birth, the minds were changed at a foundational level. Our minds were changed at a foundational level. Before regeneration, our minds were unable to perceive spiritual things. 
In a previous session, we looked at what theologians call the noetic effects of sin, and you might remember that from uh, quite, a, quite a long time ago in, in a previous session. That word noetic means having to do with the mind and intellect, the noetic effects of sin, our intellect, how we think, the state in which we were born is affected by sin. Sin didn't completely strip us of reason, but it made us foolish in our thinking. Because we're born foolish and stay foolish if God does not change us by the new birth, the unsaved person has reason, but sin clouds their reason. This is why there is such a thing as atheists. God has given the entire human race what we call general revelation. We've been over that before in previous sessions. The general re this general revelation is what's all around us in creation, and also as we look inward and see our own conscience within us. General revelation. General revelation doesn't give us saving information. We can't get saved by general revelation. But it does scream at us of the existence and power of God. You can't escape it. Because of the noetic effects of sin, the effect of sin on the unredeemed mind, people become futile in their thinking, as it says in Romans 1.21. So instead of crying out to God for saving revelation, wow, I can see everything around me. General revelation is screaming at me that there is a God and I am a sinner. Instead of crying out to God for saving revelation, if God does not change us, we disregard general revelation and we start building idols. John Calvin noted that the human heart, in its natural sinful state, is an idol factory. John Calvin used the example, the biblical example, of the account of Rachel stealing her father's idols. And he launched from there to say this about man's sinful bent toward idols. He said, from this, we may gather that man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. Man's mind, full as it is of pride and boldness, dares to imagine a God according to its own capacity. As it sluggishly plods, indeed is overwhelmed with the crassest ignorance, it conceives an unreality and an empty appearance as God. We'll start looking at this contrast between the state of our minds before the new birth and the state of our minds after. And the first place I want to point to is the reaction of the people to the parables of Jesus. And if you'd like to follow along, I'll read from Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. I'll be in verses 10 to 16. Then the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing, they do not see. And hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. Now, this passage shows us several things about the effect of regeneration on the mind. First, Jesus quoted from Isaiah to show that spiritual truth is a closed book to the unregenerated mind. In verse 14, the portion that Jesus quotes says this, You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. The people who were there, hearing Jesus' parables, they could all hear. They heard the words of the parables, but the people were divided between those who could understand the point behind the parables and those who could not. 
There was a percentage of the crowd who were not among the elect and who would never be regenerated, and to them the spiritual truths taught by Christ in the parables would remain a closed book. The Greek language used in verse 14 emphasizes this in a way that we don't see in the English translation. The Greek here uses a construction called the emphatic negative. The emphatic negative. And you could call it kind of a double negative. In English, verse 14 could read like this. You will indeed hear, but never, ever understand. And you will indeed see, but never, ever perceive. The enemies of Jesus heard the same words as the elect heard, but the book of understanding was slammed shut in their face. In contrast, the regenerate heart results in a mind that perceives spiritual things. Jesus told the disciples, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. We can understand spiritual things not because we have some kind of super IQ. We don't have a higher IQ than our unsaved neighbor, but because it has been given. It is God's grace to elect his people and give them the new birth, resulting in a new heart from which flows a mind to perceive and understand spiritual things. The incarnation of Christ wrought spiritual light, but because those who do not belong to Christ love the darkness because their affections are centered on sin, they not only avoid the light, but they do not perceive or comprehend spiritual matters. Now second, there is a linkage between the spiritual condition of the heart and the ability of the mind to perceive and understand spiritual truth. Verse 15 of this passage tells us that this people's heart has grown dull. Now, since the heart is the source of the streams of our lives, like the head of a river is the source of what is downstream, if the heart is dull and corrupt, what comes from the heart is also polluted and corrupt. In our natural state, our hearts were dull. So all that is downstream from that source, the mind, the will, and the affections are all polluted. I'll read next from Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, I'll be in verses 17 and 18. And this passage ties in with that Matthew 13 passage. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. The futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due, due to their hardness of heart. The unredeemed mind is darkened in understanding. That dark state of the mind results in what verse 17 says is the futility of their minds, the futility of their minds. Futility means that the product of their minds is of no eternal use or value. Imagine going through your whole life and the product of your mind has no eternal use or value whatsoever. The futility of their minds. This futility of mind, this darkening of understanding, is a culpable futility and darkening. And by the word culpable, I mean that before our salvation, we were blameworthy for our dark and futile minds. The blameworthiness is because of what we see in Ephesians 4.18. That verse tells us that we were darkened in understanding, ignorant, and futile in mind because of our hardness of heart. Once again, the source, the heart, was contaminated. So everything downstream is contaminated. In Ezekiel chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, I'll read from that next. Ezekiel 12, verses 1 and 2, it shows this lack of perception of spiritual things by the unredeemed mind. Ezekiel 12, beginning in verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, you dwell in the midst of a rebellious house who have eyes to see, but see not, who have ears to hear, but hear not, for 
They are a rebellious house. The mind in rebellion against God may seem like it may seem like it has perception. They have eyes to see and ears to hear, but their perception is shut off. They hear spiritual words, but they have no ability to comprehend them. They have eyes to see, but see not. They have ears to hear, but they hear not. That is what separated those who heard Jesus' parables and gained insight from those who did not. Now let's go back to the passage that we were looking at, Matthew 13. Back to Matthew 13, verses 10 to 16. We've seen two things that the passage shows us about the effect of regeneration on the mind versus our minds before regeneration. Now we'll see a third aspect. Third, because our minds in our natural state were corrupt, this affected how we perceived everything. Verse 15 refers to our perception as our eyes and ears. The hearts of the unredeemed are dull, which leads to them closing their eyes and refusing to hear with their ears. It's like what kids do when someone's trying to tell them something they don't want to hear. They plug up their ears and start saying, I can't hear you, I can't hear you, I can't hear you. And they do it on purpose to drown you out. It's a willful act on their part. They deliberately close off their perception of truth. And there's a word we should pay attention to here, and that is the word lest. Lest they should see with their eyes. That word lest is translated from a Greek word pointing to purpose. And not only that, but the word itself is emphatic. They have closed off their perception of truth with a purpose behind it. That purpose is an emphatic aversion to truth. The unregenerate mind has such an emphatic aversion to truth that it closes off perception. The enemies of Christ could hear the words of Jesus' parables, but not only could they, they couldn't understand it, but they had an emphatic aversion to understanding with their mind. It's like their minds were allergic to the truth. Therefore, they shut down their perception. They closed their eyes. They stopped up their ears. Before the new birth, we could do nothing on our own to repair our own situation. We could not even understand our own situation. We were under the noetic effects of sin. This means that sin affects how we think. When we were in sin, we could still use reason. We could still function in the world. But in another sense, we couldn't think straight. We could not accept the things of the Spirit of God. I'll be next in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 to 16, it tells us about the state of our minds before the new birth and how that situation was hopeless for us unless God intervened. 1 Corinthians 2, 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. Now we are all born in this category of what verse 14 says, the natural person. The natural person is one whose whole frame of reference is this present age, what is of the world. Paul says three things about the natural person. First, they reject the things of the Spirit of God. He does not receive truth. Second, the reason they reject spiritual truth is because these things register as foolishness to them. You know, I used to work with someone who rejected the existence of God altogether. And all of my attempts to, to communicate anything of the truth to him were met with rejection. He basically said that all the truths of the gospel made no sense to him. It's not surprising. His lack of understanding led to his rejection. He saw spiritual truth as folly. It was foolishness to him. All the truth we regard as precious, he saw it as just so much gibble-gabble. 
So he rejected spiritual truth. He rejected it because he saw it as foolishness or folly. Everything that relates to sin, guilt, and our need for redemption, meaningless to him. His outlook is limited to this present world. A third, a natural person has total inability to understand spiritual things. He isn't equipped to do so. And this is because like is known by like. Like is known by like. The natural person can only understand natural things. Only when one has the Holy Spirit can he begin to understand what is spiritual. Verse 14 tells us that spiritual things must be spiritually discerned. Only when the Holy Spirit is within us and empowers our mind can we evaluate what is spiritual. But everything changes with the new birth. The theologian Bavink wrote this about the different perspective we have since our minds have been regenerated. He wrote, A Christian's confession is not an island in the ocean, but a high mountaintop from which the whole creation can be surveyed. Bavink was simply saying the same thing that Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, which we just read. The natural man cannot understand or accept the things of God, but the spiritual person judges all things. With a regenerated mind, we begin to see all things as they truly are, like we are on a, a mountaintop surveying the creation. Our perspective is completely different. When the Holy Spirit caused us to be born again, he reversed our mind's inability to perceive spiritual truth. We were given the ability to understand and evaluate spiritual things. It wasn't just gibble-gabble to us anymore. Let's look at scriptural examples of this. First, if you'd like to follow along, I'll read one verse from Psalm 119. This is Psalm 119, verse 18. In Psalm 119, verse 18, the psalmist is expressing his desire to more fully appreciate God's word, but he recognizes his need for what only God can provide. And he said, Open my eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Open my eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Now, the psalmist already had contemplated the word of God, but he hungered for more. He wanted greater understanding. He desired to behold wondrous things from God's word. But these are all things that are spiritually discerned. This isn't just a matter of reading words and understanding the words themselves. To behold the wondrous things that God has communicated, we need to pray to the author of the words. Heart-level understanding is a relational act. Reflecting a relationship with God, the author of the words. I'm going to read from the Gospel of John next. The Gospel of John, where Jesus gives us the only remedy for our clouded eyes. Now, as we come to John chapter 6, we'll be in John chapter 6, verse 42. Jesus had already performed the miracle of feeding the 5,000. And the crowds had followed him, expecting to be fed again. Jesus gave them greater truth that he himself is the bread of life. The crowds refuse to believe in Jesus for eternal life. Now as we come to John chapter 6, I'll read verses 42 to 46. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the fathers comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Jesus gave them the hard truth as to why they didn't believe. Only those drawn to Christ by the Father will believe. He then quotes Isaiah, saying, It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. 
Who is the all in this passage that will be taught by God? Not those of the crowd who refuse to believe. Jesus says who the all are. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Among those who heard Jesus, the great dividing line was between those with an unredeemed mind and those who have heard and learned from the Father. It's this drawing by the Father in the inward regeneration of mind, this learning from the Father that is needed in order that we may come to Christ. When we are born again, the Holy Spirit begins to give to us illumination of the scriptures. We can now begin to understand so much that had been cloudy or closed to us before. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, which is where I'll be next, in Luke 24, the resurrected Christ shows himself to the disciples, showing them that he had a physical resurrected body and showing them the wounds of the cross. Jesus then told them that all this fulfilled the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. I'm going to read now from Luke chapter 24, verses 44 to 48. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Once Jesus told them that all of what happened was a fulfillment of Scripture, it says, Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. Once their minds were opened, they began to see the linkage between the Old Testament prophecies and the fulfillment that they'd actually witnessed. The change that took place in our minds at the moment of our regeneration didn't stop there. This renewing of our minds continues throughout our Christian lives. There is a fundamental change in our minds at the new birth, then an ongoing and continuing improvement to our understanding of spiritual things. In Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he thanked the Lord for what he had done in the lives of the Ephesian Christians and also told them how he prayed for them. I'm going to read part of that prayer. It's in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. You know, God had already enlightened the hearts of the Ephesian Christians, but Paul prayed that it wouldn't stop there. He prayed that, <clears throat> he prayed that the Father would give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God. This is an ongoing, further expansion of the enlightening they had already experienced. This opening of the scriptures doesn't happen all at once. We will be engaged in the study of scripture for our whole lives and never begin to mine all the treasures of it. But with the regenerated mind, we are now equipped for this continuing journey of understanding. I'll be next in the Gospel of John, chapter 3, the encounter of Nicodemus with Jesus, which shows the inability of the natural mind to comprehend spiritual truth. Nicodemus was a highly respected leader and member of the party of the Pharisees and a member of the Sanhedrin. He came to Jesus by night and told Jesus that he and the like-minded among them, saw Jesus as a teacher who had come from God. Jesus then tells Nicodemus a spiritual truth, a truth that separates those who have a mind that can comprehend spiritual things from those that cannot. Jesus told him that he must be born again. I'll read from John chapter 3, verses 7 to 12. 
Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Earlier in the chapter, Nicodemus told Jesus that he saw Jesus as a teacher from God because of the miracles and signs that Jesus displayed. That was the limit of the mind of Nicodemus at that point. He could see what was obvious because no one, you, know, you couldn't deny the miracles. Jesus had to be in some way from God. Nicodemus stopped at Jesus being a teacher from God. Jesus then challenges Nicodemus with spiritual truth that he and all Israel needed to know, you must be born again. Jesus could see that Nicodemus had only an earthly mind because he could only see what was obviously visible to everyone and that he could only come to the bare minimum conclusion, you are a teacher from God. He could not yet see that Jesus was the promised Messiah. In Nicodemus, we see what happens when an unredeemed mind tries to comprehend spiritual truth. In the case of Nicodemus, the truth that he failed to see at first in his unredeemed state was that Jesus wasn't just a teacher truly sent from God. Jesus is much, much more. Nicodemus and all of the Pharisees should have acknowledged Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah and worshipped him as such. Now we'll turn to the book of 1 John. 1 John. To see another danger that occurs when those with unredeemed minds try to influence the church. John was writing to churches in Asia Minor, or the province of Asia. His purpose had something in common with the other epistles, the battle between truth and error. In this letter, John was teaching against an error brought by some that Jesus had not truly incarnated. And this may have been the false doctrine brought by a heretic named Serinthus, Serinthus, who taught that the man Jesus was only a mere man and that the Christ descended on the man Jesus at his baptism and then left him before the cross. This was the kind of error that John had to battle. John had a pastor's heart, and he tells these churches to apply a doctrinal test to these people to discover that they're false teachers. And I'll read first from 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this, you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Now let's move forward a chapter to 1 John, chapter 5, verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. John was guarding the flock from false teachers who separated Jesus from Christ. And to counter the false doctrine, he teaches the true doctrine and uses it as a spiritual test of teachers. One of the tests of doctrine of a teacher that John urged was this. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. The minds of the false teachers were unredeemed and therefore corrupted by sin. They twisted true Christian doctrine into heresy 
by denying that Christ is two natures in one person. Christ is fully God and fully man, two natures in one person. John told the flock that in this battle with those who followed Serinthus, they were to apply this spiritual test. The followers of Serinthus were not born again. They did not have redeemed minds, so they didn't believe true doctrine concerning Christ. True teachers who are born again are able to receive this mystery of two natures in one person. They have redeemed minds and are therefore able to believe true doctrine. Now let's turn back a few chapters to 1 John chapter 2, and I'll read verses 18 to 20. 1 John chapter 2, I'll read verses 18 to 20. The genuine believers should now be able to recognize those who followed the false teachers in two ways. We'll see those two ways in this next passage. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might be plain that they are, that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. The first way that the genuine believers can see who had unredeemed minds, those who followed false teachers, was this line in verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. Look around at the empty seats to the right and left of you, he might say, and note those who have left. They couldn't bear sound doctrine. They followed false teachers because they had unredeemed minds. They were not of us to begin with. They were part of the visible church for a time, but their true state as having unredeemed minds finally made itself known, and now they're gone. The second way that genuine believers could see who had unredeemed minds is in verse 20. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. Christ had anointed them with the Holy Spirit, and therefore all of these genuine believers had knowledge. They were born again by the power of the Holy Spirit, and therefore they had redeemed minds. And they were able to discern truth from falsehood. They believed what John taught and rejected what the followers of Serinthus taught. In the new birth or regeneration, God the Holy Spirit removes the heart of stone and replaces it with a new heart, a heart of flesh. Since the heart is the source of everything downstream, a changed heart changes what's downstream. Therefore, the mind is changed. Before we, before we were regenerated, we had minds that were hostile to God. And we'll go to a couple of passages that show the great contrast between our minds before regeneration and our minds after the new birth. So first, if you'd like to follow along, I'll read from Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. I'll be in verses 21 to 23. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable, and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Before the new birth, our minds were hostile toward God. Our ability to think and reason was affected by the noetic effects of sin, sin acting on our minds. We had no ability to truly comprehend spiritual things according to truth. Our minds had a disposition of hostility toward God. And verse 21 tells us what was downstream from our minds, which were hostile to God. What was downstream was our deeds. We were doing evil deeds. 
Now let's turn to a similar passage. We'll be in Romans chapter 8 now. Romans chapter 8. And as we approach Romans chapter 8, verses 5 to 9, Paul has told us that there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. No condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. The Mosaic law could not justify us because we were sinful and could not follow the law. But Christ did for us what the law could not do, which was to bring justification to us. Now as we come to verse 5, Paul emphasizes the contrast between what our minds were like before the new birth and our minds now. Romans 8.5 For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. The entire direction of our minds has shifted with the new birth. When we were in the flesh, before regeneration, verse 5 tells us that our minds were set on the things of the flesh. Our mental disposition was toward the things of the flesh. The flesh characterized our thinking. Verses 6 and 7 tells us that the disposition of the unredeemed mind leads, leads to death and is hostile to God. In our unredeemed state, we could not please God. But now, with verse 9, everything changes. Reminds me of advertisements with before and after pictures. Paul is giving us the ultimate before and after picture. After regeneration, we are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. As verse 5 tells us, we now set our minds on the things of the Spirit. The before and after aspect of what we were before regeneration and what we are after explains why the Ordo Salutis is listed in this way. In your notes, where the order of salvation or the Ordo Salutis is listed, you'll see that 1A and 1B, the effectual call and regeneration, come before 2a and 2b, which are repentance unto life and faith in Jesus Christ. Before we were born again, we were spiritually dead. Because our minds were unredeemed, our minds were hostile against God. We had no ability to perceive spiritual things according to truth. Remember what Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3.3? Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Remember that a few minutes ago, we looked at our inability to perceive spiritual things. This is a culpable blindness. In other words, we were blamable for our eyes being closed and our ears being stopped up. In our state, before the new birth, we were allergic to truth. We couldn't do anything to change the state ourselves. I think that a lot of Christians mistakenly think that first, a person comes to faith in Christ, and then that causes them to be born again. This is really an Arminian concept. Regeneration is a monergistic work of God. In other words, God works alone. That's what monergistic means. God works alone in regeneration. In regeneration, we are passive recipients of the mysterious work of the Holy Spirit. I didn't decide to have faith and be born again. I didn't wake up one morning and say, I'm just in a mood to be born again this morning. So I think I'll give it a shot. I think I'll have faith today. You know, there's people out there thinking that they're going to go out there and seek out faith through every other means but the right way, and they're all headed in the wrong direction when they go out and try to seek faith themselves. I didn't just decide one day, I'm going to have faith, and I'm going to make myself born again. Before the new birth, 
my mind was incapable of perceiving truth, and I didn't even want to perceive truth. Only once God, the Holy Spirit, caused me to be born again did I come to faith in Christ. Arminians believe in some form of what's called synergism instead of monergism. Instead of God working alone in regeneration, they believe that we somehow work synergistically with God or together with God to be regenerated. This Arminian belief leads to people coming up with formulas on how to be born again. You know, back in the 1970s, Billy Graham actually wrote a best-selling book called How to Be Born Again. But we don't have the power in our natural state to follow some formula to be born again. The Holy Spirit does this work, and he does it in a mysterious way. Remember what Jesus told Nicodemus about the Spirit's work in the new birth? Back in John chapter 3, he said, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Mysterious. If you believe in Jesus for salvation, then that means that the Holy Spirit has already caused you to be born again. It is the new birth that enabled you to come to that faith and caused you to come to that faith. This is why, in the order of salvation, regeneration comes before faith. In terms of time, both happen in the same moment, but logically speaking, the Holy Spirit does the monergistic work of regeneration first, enabling us and causing us to come to faith in Christ. The new birth, regeneration, changes everything. Since our hearts are renewed, the river's source is now renewed. Everything downstream from the source is now changed. Our minds are changed. Now, does that mean our minds are now perfect? We've arrived at perfection? Of course, we know that's not true. Regeneration lays a new foundation, a new disposition. Now, for the rest of our time on this earth, we are to grow in that new foundation. And I'll read next from Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. In this passage, Paul, he's appealing to the flock to continue to build on the foundation that God the Holy Spirit has already given to them. I'll read from Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul tells the Romans how we must now live. It's kind of in a pattern of, well, don't do this, but instead do that. For those of us who attended home church fellowship, we've been going through New Testament passages that use the Greek grammar of what we call the present imperative. The present imperative. Now, the word imperative means that it's a command. Now, the present part of present imperative means it's a command that we're not just doing once and then we're done. We're to do this as an ongoing habit. In verse 2, there's two of these present imperatives. The first one is a negative. Do not be conformed to this world. Our ongoing habit must be to not be conformed to this world. The second of the present imperatives is what we're to do instead, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And the Greek word we see translated as transformed is the word that we get metamorphosis from. We're commanded as an ongoing habit of life to continue a metamorphosis, an inward changing of our character. In this Greek construction, the present imperative tells us we haven't yet arrived at perfection in this life. It's an ongoing process for as long as we're on the earth. Our new birth laid the foundation. It changed us fundamentally. But now we're going forward in our metamorphosis. Verse 2 tells us how we continue in this transformation, this ongoing metamorphosis. It is by the renewal of our mind. Our minds have been fundamentally changed by the new birth, but now there's a process of continual renewal of our minds. 
which the Holy Spirit is working in us. As the Holy Spirit renews our minds, we become more and more able to do what verse 2 tells us we should do. We are to test and discern what the will of God is. We come across choices every day, choices in how to think, what to believe, how to act. Our goal must be, as verse 2 says, what is good, acceptable to God, and perfect. We haven't yet arrived fully at every choice being good, acceptable, and perfect. But that is the model and pattern we strive for. Our actions are downstream of our minds. So as the Holy Spirit continues to renew our minds, we will continue to see a metamorphosis of our character. So regeneration replaces our heart of stone with a heart of flesh. We liken the heart to a river's source. If the source is polluted, everything downstream will be polluted. Our mind, will, and affections are downstream from the heart. With regeneration, everything downstream from the new heart begins to take on a new disposition. Tonight we've looked at the mind. And next time we'll look at the will and how our will is changed by regeneration. And as we end, I want to quote from one of the sermons of Spurgeon where he speaks of this metamorphosis of the new birth. He said, But when I get Christ, my thoughts not only have comfort, but they get a solid conviction that the things must be true. Perhaps there are a few among you here that are troubled with skeptical doubts. But they will afflict some of us, and I can say with regard to them, whenever they come across my soul in any shape or form, I find the short and quick answer is this. I know one thing, namely, that I am not what I used to be. I know that I have entered into a new world. I feel spiritual heavings in my soul, spiritual longings, emotions, desires, to which I was an utter stranger once. I know there has been as great a metamorphosis passed upon me as though a swine should suddenly become a seraph. I know that the very thought of Jesus keeps me back from sin and impels me in the path of duty. I know that his name exercises such a charm over me that no magician's wand ever wrought such wonders. My rocky heart melts. My frozen soul dissolves at the touch of his love. And I, a clod of dead earth, suddenly get wings and fly and commune with the eternal God. Why, that must be true, which has done all this for me. I feel within myself that my own consciousness must be true and that the Lord Jesus has so interwoven and intertwisted himself with my being, nay, overlaid and covered my being, that though I should doubt all beside, I could not doubt the existence and divine power of my Lord Jesus Christ.